Hebrews chapter 13, I so appreciate the things that uh, Chris shared from chapter 10 in the first service. And I'd also encourage you, if you weren't here for the conference, you know, get those recordings and listen to them. It was just a great time in going through the book of Hebrews. The chapter that I am with, or that I have, or that I'm closing with is chapter 13. And as I believe Paul read the first two verses, I believe that is the the basis for the rest of the chapter. I'm only going to emphasize a few verses after that, and because much of what is in chapter 13 has been mentioned before, one of the things that was discussed throughout the conference was the authorship of the book of Hebrews. It doesn't have anybody. Many times the Apostle Paul would put his name, or you would know at the end that he had written this, or that he had dictated it, And the thing is, the writer of Hebrews doesn't identify himself, but I would say, for the most part, the majority of people feel that if you wanted to, to, you know, take a spiritual guess at who the author is, I fall in the same camp, camp that the other brothers shared earlier in the conference, that we believe it's the Apostle Paul. Not only in its style, but again, some of the references that are made, including in chapter 13, a reference to Timothy, including at the end of the epistle, reference that it's written from Rome. Uh, so there's so many things that, again, would, would, would give us the, uh, the belief that the Apostle Paul's the one that actually wrote this. And the thing that kind of is uh, literary style, it's similar to the epistles or letters that the Apostle Paul writes. Many times when you get to that last chapter, you get a lot of encouragement, just kind of little point-by-point application as how to live in the things that have been previously taught. And chapter 13, I believe, is no different. And he begins the chapter by saying, let brotherly love continue. One thing I do will mention to you in case you haven't been here or haven't uh, been here when I've taught before as well, is that I do use the old King James. Um, I hope that doesn't become too difficult to follow with, although I think your pastor uses the new King James. Um, I just, I love the majesty of the old King James, and it's something too, on the day that I accepted Jesus as my Savior, the first thing I went out to do was to buy a Bible, and there were not a lot of choices available back then. And going into the B. Dalton bookstore in Orange County, actually in El Toro, there was maybe three, four Bibles on the bookshelf, and I ended up buying an old King James Bible, large print. I could use that large print now. And that's why I have these, my, my, my cheaters, as they call them. But old King James, verse 1 The writer says, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And as I mentioned, you know, I believe what is being communicated here is just the basis for what is going to follow in the rest of the chapter. You always see this truth that's constantly being emphasized in God's word with regards to love. Love is emphasized over and over in the scriptures, a love for God, a love for my brothers and sisters, a love for the lost world around you and sharing the gospel. And I think sometimes when we talk about love, we maybe can kind of be, a, you know, especially if you've aged at all, you can kind of feel like, yeah, yeah, I've heard, I know about love, and yeah, I've heard about love, and love, everybody talks about love, and songs are written about love, and all the world needs now is love, sweet love. And we can just talk about love. But I think there's a reason why it's emphasized over and over in the scriptures, because we have such difficulty in putting those things into practice. And as a matter of fact, even as I think about some of the definitive chapters that talk about love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has to come to mind. And I think what happens is you can talk about love, but it needs to be demonstrated. And when the writer of Hebrews says to let brotherly love continue, it makes the assumption that the work of God in the church has begun on this platform of love. Matter of fact, Jesus you know, when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about no other foundation that can be laid than that which is laid in Christ Jesus, you know, you build upon that foundation of Jesus. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. 
Jesus, the Son of God, in the greatest demonstration of love, pay the price for your sins, for my sins, on the cross. When a person comes to Christ, then, we're acknowledging that love, but then we're also then expected to be channels of God's love as well. Jesus would say to his disciples, the world will know that you're my disciples. And he doesn't say because of the knowledge that you have of God's word or your ability to prophesy or your ability to, uh, to do miracles or have healing services or your ability to entertain the masses. He doesn't say any of those things. He says uh, the, probably the strongest evidence for the work of God and that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, he says, is by your love one for another. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the apostle Paul says, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not, Old King James's charity, but can also be translated as an agape love. I am become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love, is, love suffers long, is kind. Love envies not. Love vaunts not itself up. It's not puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemly. It seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they shall fail. And whether there be tongues, they shall cease. And where there is knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, I believe it's speaking of the coming of our Lord Savior. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass or a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. Now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. When the writer of Hebrews closes the epistle by saying, let love continue. And where, where I'm going with this, and you'll quickly understand, I'm going to read you know, up to verse 7. And the reason why I'm going to read up there and probably not do much explaining, because I also believe that God's word speaks. I think sometimes pastors do a disservice to try to explain too much when the power is in God's word. I think, again, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. But the person that has been born again by the Spirit of God, that understanding comes. And again, if you've ever read through the book of Hebrews, and so much of this has already been covered throughout the conference, but he goes on to say not to... Be, be, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, verse 2, thereby some have entertained angels unaware. He says, remember them that are in bonds, those that have been in prison for the sake of their relationship with Jesus Christ or the gospel's sake. Maybe not in this country, although maybe to some degree as well, but there are people around the world that are still being imprisoned for their faith in Christ. They're still being persecuted and the writer of Hebrews says to remember those people as bound with them. And them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Verse 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. He is talking about the importance of, again, treasuring marriage, the institution of marriage. And for husbands and wives, recognizing the blessing that God has given in your husband or in your wife, but there's also a warning against sexual sin. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Verse 5, let your, Old King James uses the word conversation. The word can easily be translated or the idea that's being communicated is manner of living. Let your manner of living be without covetousness. Think about the world that we're living in today and think about how much is driven by 
covetousness. I, you see a commercial, it's like, I want that car. Or again, you're driving through neighborhoods and you see a beautiful home. I remember when my daughter was just, a, uh, you know, in grade school and I would drive her a particular, I'd drive her to, to the Christian school she was attending in Minneapolis. I would drive the same route and it was about a 15 minute drive and we drove through one of the nicer areas, the Twin Cities. Actually, we lived in one of the very nicer areas in the Minneapolis area, the, the city of Edina. We rented, we, could, we couldn't afford back then to ever buy there in Edina, but as we were driving by this beautiful home, up on a hill a little bit, it was a, a, an old farmhouse, and there was this for sale sign that was there on the house, and my daughter back then says, Daddy, maybe we should buy a house, maybe we could buy that house, and I, I'm like, sweetheart, we, your mom and I could never afford to buy a house like that. And she says, could you call? Could you? I mean, it says for sale, could you call? And I, I said, sweetheart, I guarantee you that house is, is going to sell for $2 million. And she says, please call, Daddy. And, and I'm thinking, okay, I love her faith. Maybe I'll call and they'll say, yeah, the house is 150000 And <laughs> you're a vet and you can get a, a, a zero down VA loan. <laughs> but I called it and it, it wasn't $2 million. It was 199 million, I mean, 199,000, wait, it was almost $2 million. It was just short by a 1,000. I can't do the math. I love how Paul, too, mentioned, you know, when he was talking about years married, I was thinking, I, you know, I, I used to feel pretty good about the fact that my wife and I have been married for 35 years, and now I just feel like I'm such a kid. But I have the same problem remembering dates and how long we've been married, so you can ask my wife those things. But the writer of Hebrews just says, let your manner of living be without covetousness. Paul in his epistle in Colossians says that covetousness is idolatry. You're putting something else in the place of God because of that great desire. You know, the last commandments of the Ten Commandments talk about not coveting your neighbor's goods, your neighbor's servants, your neighbor's wife. I mean, we are we live in a society where covetousness is encouraged and yet the writer says God's word says not to let your manner of living let it be without covetousness and the opposite of covetousness is contentment whatever i mean we we have so much but so many times we don't appreciate the things we have because we, we look at what others have. As a matter of fact, politics plays on that as well. You think about it, it's like, what? and I'm not a big fan of politics, and I'm not as politically savvy. Um, I have great admiration for, for Mary Danielson and just her, you know, and Pastor Dwight as well, but just for their knowledge of things that are going on, not only in the world, but politically. But you see, the, the, sometimes the political parties trying to hold out you know, these things. We'll, we'll forgive this, and we'll do that, and we'll give you this, and everybody should have that. And, and really what they're playing upon is the greed of the American people so that they can get votes. I hope we're more discerning than that. Somebody's got to pay for those things. And many times it's just the few that are doing the work. But it says that we're to be content with such things as you have. For he has said, this is what the Lord says, this is what, the, what God said to Joshua when he took the place of Moses in leading the children of Israel into the promised land. For God has said, I will never leave you nor, nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now, really, I'm going to park on three verses. I, I, for many, many years as I was growing up in the Lord when I got saved, I was in the Marine Corps when I got saved, and really just an emphasis, I had a desire to, to know God's word. And so not only was I reading God's word on a daily basis on my own, but I was in Southern California. There was a, a Christian radio station at the time where a lot of the, the teachers that were on the radio station, it was an AM station, I know Rob probably remembers this, and I don't know if Dwight was ever out in Southern California at the time, but it was called KBRT, K-Bright. Pastor Chuck was on it, and some of the other Calvary pastors were on it. So I'd listen to teaching on the radio, I'd listen to teaching on cassettes. You know, I'm old enough to remember eight tracks as well. 
some of you maybe aren't old enough to remember cassettes. Those are what was before CDs and or MP3s and then CDs and audio files, things like that. We put this cassette in this player, but I listened to cassettes. And the thing is, you'd listen many times to Pastor Chuck, and as he, many times his style of teaching was called a running commentary. Just as I'm doing this morning, I'm reading the passage of Scripture. At times I'm pausing and I'm making comment on it. But there were times when you'd listen to Pastor Chuck, he would come to a verse and he would park on it. And that's what I'm going to do three times in the chapter. I'm going to park on three verses. I love the fact that I get to park on these verses here from this pulpit. Because even though in our own fellowship we recently went through the book of Hebrews, you know, I'll read the verse and you'll understand why I'm saying I'm glad that I can do this here at this pulpit because it doesn't sound like I'm doing this for my benefit, but it, I'm doing this for the benefit of the body that's here, but for the benefit of the leadership that's here, including your pastor. The writer of Hebrews, he's going to three times talk about those that have the rule over you, those that are in positions of authority or of leadership. When I taught this in my own fellowship, and, and you know, it's funny because a pastor can say, you need to submit, you need to obey, you need to do, when I get to these three things, and, and I'll read the verse, verse 7 says, remember them that have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their, old King James says, conversation, considering the end of their manner of living, Paul Smith actually read this as well, a verse, or he quoted this. And I was, again, I was like, that's, that's you, Lord, that Paul would read this verse. Or he wrote it down in his notes. He, he, said, he said, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the, the one thread that you see woven through this last chapter, and that's brought up three times, is the writer's concern for the local church and how the local church views the leadership, their pastor, those that have the rule. And the first thing that he's going to say is remember. The next thing that he's going to say in verse 17 is obey. And the last thing that he's going to say in verse 24 is to salute. Now I'm going to get to all three of those in a moment. But let's just focus our attention. Let's just park for a minute here in verse 7. And he says, remember them that have the rule over you. Now there's a reason why... To some degree, I wanted to develop that idea of verse 1 of love. Because it's easy, it's easy to say, remember those that have the rule over you. It sounds so authoritative and authoritarian. Now, one thing I'll say is my four years in the Marine Corps, and you could probably look at me now and say, you were in the Marines? Yeah, I was. I could give you how many years ago, I'm, I'm 59, I went into the Marine Corps 40 years ago, but I prefer to reference it in terms of not years, but weight. I was in the Marine Corps 120 pounds ago. <laughs> maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe not. No, I'm not. About 110 probably is a closer number. But here's the thing. It's one thing to say, and to just simply, I think so many times we take portions of God's word and we take them without the context that's there. Not only the context of the chapter, but sometimes the context of the word of God as a whole. And there are churches too, and there have been cults that many times will emphasize Submitting to the leadership, not questioning the leadership. And the thing that you see, I at least that I see in the scripture, is that when the writer of Hebrews says, first of all, to remember, you remember someone, hopefully with fondness. Remember, consider, I think the word too is also in the Greek, can have that idea to consider as well, but he's also going to mention that in verse 7. I mean, when we think of memories, typically we want to remember good memories, right? 
Nobody wants to think about that time that they were embarrassed or somebody did or hurt them in some way. Who wants to to pick at those wounds? But when the writer of Hebrews talks about remembering them, I think he's doing that in the context of verse 1 when he says, let brotherly love continue. Remember the love. Matter of fact, I already mentioned John 3.16 and the love that Jesus demonstrated. And the other thing that, again, too, Jesus talks about the love that he has in being a good shepherd as well and his willingness to lay down his life for the sheep. And a pastor... And again, I feel this great liberty to be able to share these things because they're not serving me as a pastor. I love at home the church, the flock that I pastor, as a matter of fact. I'm so grateful for them. I'm grateful for the maturity, for the love they show. I have so many, I, you know, like Aaron and her holding up, you know, Moses' hands up on the battlefield as Joshua's down there fighting the battles. Over the years, I've just felt my fellowship come around me and my wife and just the constant demonstration of love and maturity that has come by developing this long-term relationship with them. And there's new people that get saved, new people that come in, and there's some people that go out. I mean, there's all these different things that take place, but I'm just so grateful. And when I think about remembering, I have to remember for me, when I first got saved, I remember the, the Calvary Chapel that I attended, and I remember my pastor for the first five years there at Calvary Chapel. But I, I, I think or I remember the lessons that were taught. And that's the thing that the writer of Hebrews talks about. He, he mentions three things about remembering those that have the rule over you. He says, remember those, and one other person I'll have to tell you, and again, I I'm, I'm embarrassing him, and, and, and Dwight was right. I was surprised when he introduced me on Thursday, and he didn't take some kind of little... But, you know, you tease friends, right? And Dwight does that, and I'm able to dish it back as well. But I think of Dwight not only as a, a friend, but first as a pastor, as someone that I looked up to, someone that I've called time and time again for prayer and for advice and for godly counsel. And so I remember not only my pastor of the church that we were a part of when I got saved. But I remember coming back to Minnesota, and I remember those early years and the difficulty in ministry. And I remember the faithfulness of my friend Dwight. And in a way, there were times that he would give me advice, and in my heart, I didn't agree with that. I thought, I didn't like that. You know, my, sometimes the, fl- the flesh resists the work that God is wanting to do through the Spirit or through his word. But Dwight would always come back to the word of God. This is what the word of God says. Mike, this is how you should handle it. And he had the advantage of not only that, but experience, but the Holy Spirit working through him as well. And in a way, like I mentioned coming out here the first time, even before we planted the church, in a way, I was willing to submit myself to him as a pastor, because first of all, I recognized his brotherly love. I recognized the love. And that's the thing. God's word doesn't tell you, again, to to remember those that have the rule of you if there's no love involved. First Corinthians chapter 13, I've already mentioned that, but it just makes common sense. And I'm going to draw a parallel when I get to verse 17. And when I talk more about obedience, But the writer of Hebrews says to remember. They've spoken unto you the word of God. Is there anything more important that we as believers need? And Peter says this in his epistle. He says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. Maturity comes from the word of God. Relationships are important. But when it comes to spiritual maturity, it comes with the word of God. It's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to be in the word on a daily basis. But then coming to church on Sunday and for midweek studies or men's Bible studies or women's Bible studies or new believer studies or whatever studies are available in the church, 
then all of that is added to the work that God is wanting to do. And so many times we don't have an understanding or we need, and one of the spiritual gifts is that of pastor-teacher. The Lord says that, that it's been given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, Ephesians chapter 4. It's a gift. God gifts the man with the, the abilities that are needed to be able to equip the church. And as a result, the writer of Hebrews is saying, remember those guys, remember the pastor, remember the leadership. Over the years, I've also been involved with some of the Calvary chapels, especially in Minnesota, but also in other parts of the country, maybe through circumstances or whatever, their pastor has either uh, stepped down or they needed to find another pastor or they were a group of people wanting to get, have a pastor. And one of the things I always say to the leadership board is, you need to understand the kind of sacrifice that a man and his wife or his family are going to make when they come to pastor. And you need to reverence or honor and remember those things in your, again, to recognizing his leadership and recognizing those sacrifices, but also to coming alongside and supporting that work. But the first thing he says is to remember those. They've spoken on you to the word of God. He also says, whose faith follow. Paul would say this twice to the church at Corinth, first in chapter 4, verse 14, when he says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you that though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, and Paul is talking about all these itinerant people who are trying to come in and influence this really carnal and lacking in maturity church at Corinth. And Paul had spent a big chunk of time at Corinth, and yet they were still pretty, you know, they had their problems. They were a problem church. But he spent 18 months there, and after those 18 months, then Paul talks about it. I planted, Apollos watered, but God has given the increase. But they were constantly trying to be influenced. There was this constant influence by these people who were just coming in and telling them what to do, or even, you know, giving them false teaching as well. And Paul says in verse 15, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you have not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, because of those things, he says, I beseech you, be followers of me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, very similar. He says, be followers, can also be translated you know, imitators. Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. See, follow, imitate, whose faith follow is mentioned there in verse 7. Remember them because they've spoken the word. Remember because you're following or, or imitate or be an imitator of their faith. But he says, considering the end of their manner of living or lifestyle. So many times you can look at the trajectory where that man, that pastor, that leader, what their life is leading to. And if they're motivated by fleshly or carnal things, you know it's leading ultimately to destruction. But for a godly man, a godly shepherd, a pastor or leaders in the church, when they're following what, we're, what God's word says and when they're following Jesus Christ and their faith is strong, then you know where that life ends. That at the end of that life, they're going to stand before the Lord and the Lord is going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I mean, those are the ones that I want to follow. I want to follow the person that puts those truths in God's word into practice in their lives. And he says, you know, look at those things. Remember them. They've taught you God's word. Follow their faith. But he says the end of their manner of living. He goes on to say in verse 9, and I think this comes under the heading of sound biblical teaching because he's talking, he just mentioned that in verse 7. But in verse 9, he says, not to be carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. There are so many false and strange and weird doctrines that people try to introduce. Sometimes they'll write books, but they just simply, you know what, I've come up with something that nobody else has ever heard before. 
that should be a red flag. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. And on top of that, the truths of God's word are so simple. And Jesus says that unless you receive the kingdom as a little child, you're not going to enter in. I mean, they're so simple, and they should be so simple. And I think as well, if you're knowledgeable in the word of God, if you're reading God's word, there's discernment that kicks in. Like It doesn't sound right because it just doesn't line up with the rest of God's word. Pastor Chuck used to give the illustration of the bank teller. And the bank teller, before they got a chance to actually assist customers, they would handle and they would work in the vault for, I think, a couple weeks or a month handling the genuine article. Now, technology, because today you go to the bank and you're depositing money or you're getting money back in the form of cash. They run it through that little machine. It goes like it's shuffling cards. But it's instantly checking the weight and the inks and all these things, whether or not it's counterfeit. But back in the day... When there were cassettes and eight tracks, the bank tellers used to have to handle that. And Pastor Chuck would tell the story. They would get so familiar with the genuine that when somebody tried to pass the counterfeit, they could tell the difference. Matter of fact, years ago, and it was a long time ago, I was at the bank and I was getting some money and it was back before the days of the technology that I just described. And as the bank teller is counting out $100 bills to me, not that I get that on a regular basis, and I can't remember why I was getting seven or $800. I think I was moving it from one account to the other, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul for a, a, a few days. But as the teller's counting them out, all of a sudden my, my eye spotted something about one of the $100 bills that the teller was counting out. I said, stop for a second. He stops, and I, I said, go back a bill or two, and he goes back, and I said, that bill looks a little different to me. And he takes it, and then all of a sudden he holds it up, and then he takes that ink thing and runs it. He goes, you're right, it's counterfeit. And I was just able to spot that. I'm thinking, if I had left the bank and then tried to come back in and say, hey, you gave me a counterfeit bill. Oh, sure we did. I would have been out $100. But the thing is that discernment comes when you handle God's word. And when the writer of Hebrews says not to be carried about with those strange doctrines and things, the more you handle God's word, the greater ability you'll be able to discern, you know, the true from the counterfeit. And there is, we're living in a day and age where there is so much counterfeit, but one of the things that marked the end times is that it said men will be lovers of themselves and they'll have itching ears that they will heap to themselves teachers that, that are going to tickle those ears. Basically, people want to go to churches where they're just simply being told good things. And churches and ministries have made it a point to, to not preach all of God's word because they're worried about people getting offended. Oh, they'll get offended if they talk about sin, or we'll get offended if we talk about the coming of Jesus Christ, and they'll get offended if we talk about the tribulation or prophecy or fulfilled prophecy. They'll get offended of the things that Jesus suffered on the cross for us. You know, it makes me feel bad. Well, it should make you feel bad. But there are churches that are doing that, and the spiritual landscape has become such that there's less and less churches that are putting their trust in the word of God. And as a result, there is a lot of false teaching and doctrine that's out there. We have to be Bereans. You know, T.A. was here, and, and again, I love that passage in the book of Acts where Paul commends the Bereans. He says they were more noble than them of Thessalonica because they searched the scripture to see whether or not the teaching that the Apostle Paul was even giving them was so. He's not offended by that. Any pastor or teacher that's teaching you the word of God wants you to be in the word of God yourself so that you know those things and that you're not carried about, as the writer of Hebrews says. You're not drawn away or sucked away by some of those things. In verse 10, and I think Chris covered this really well when he covered chapter 10 himself. He talks about, the writer says, for we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without or outside the camp. 
portions of the sacrifice in the Old Testament when they were offered. There were portions that had to be taken outside the camp and they were burned. Those ashes were scattered out there. But the writer of Hebrews draws the parallel and in a sense he's talking about that's where Jesus suffered. He suffered outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And he says, wherefore, Jesus also, that he might be sanctified or set aside or might sanctify the people with his own blood, he suffered without or outside the gate. Let us go, therefore, unto him without or outside the camp, bearing his reproach. It says in verse 14, for we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and communicate or to share the things that we have, he says, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Here's the next verse that I want to park on, verse 17. First, he says, remember them. Secondly, he's going to say, obey them. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls that they might give account and that they might do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable to you. Obey, obedience. Like I said, just the fact that I'm bringing these things up can sound, again, there are ministries where you know that Obedience is emphasized, and in a sense, it's forced. And you're never to question. Years ago, there was a guy that came to our fellowship, and he had come from one of these, and I'll call it a cult. And there have been cults that are like that. Part of the shepherding movement, movement was part of that. Where, again, you, you're not to question anybody that's the pastor or the leadership, because in doing so, you're questioning God's anointed. You're touching God's anointed. And even then, they're taking the scripture out of context where, where, where David has two opportunities to slay Paul. And he trusts God with the, not Paul, I'm sorry, King Saul. And, and he trusts the Lord with God doing that, that God would avenge him. But here's the thing. The word obey in the Greek actually means that you come to the conclusion you're considering, but you come to the conclusion or that you're persuaded. So when it says, obey them that have the rule over you, I think back again to my early days as a Christian, and I think back then to the, the Calvary Chapel that I was a part of for the first five years of my walk, and I think back then to the fact that as a sheep, that didn't know God's word, and yet I needed a shepherd that was going to spiritually guide me and help me and kind of set boundaries at times for me. In a sense, I needed somebody to obey, but that obedience comes with a persuasion. I'm persuaded. I've, I've been persuaded to submit to those, and again, if I could rewrite this just so that for my own sake of understanding, I would rewrite it by saying, be persuaded to submit to those who have the rule over you. Your arm doesn't have to be twisted. You know, we live in a day and age where there's great freedom. Even at the time that the writer of Hebrews is writing this, if you didn't like a particular pastor or teacher, which was clear from the church at Corinth, I mean, you could say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm, you know, I'm going to go find them and I'm going to let them be my pastor. People still do that today, Right? People, if they don't like the teaching or the ministry or they find that there's something wrong doctrinally with the churches that they're attending, you know, they can vote with their feet. They can walk out. But what makes a person sit in a pew or in the church and, again, is persuaded to obedience? Obey them that have the rule, and it says, and submit. And the thing that I see is there's a, a parallel because when it comes to submission, in, in so many churches it looks so different because in, in so many churches that type of obedience and submission looks like something that's forced, right? If you do that, I mean, there's threats many times that are associated with that. 
But when I think about it, let's look at the model of Jesus and his church. Are we to obey Jesus? Are we to submit to him? Yes, because he's our Lord, he's our Savior. But there's something that demonstrated the reason why we have no problem to obey, or hopefully we don't have a problem with the idea or the concept of obedience or submission to Jesus, because we're convinced we've been persuaded of the love that he has for us. See, it's easy, and I, you know, I mentioned, you know, my military background's been brought up. I consider that an advantage before I came to Christ because I was forced to obey the guy who had more stripes on his arm than I had. And not because he was worthy of any type of, you know, oh, I really admire Sergeant Worrell or Gunnery Sergeant, you know, Balm or any of the guys that I was under. No, I did it because I swore an oath to serve in our military and, again, to follow lawful orders. And, again, emphasis on lawful. If, if, a, if somebody that was of a higher rank or an officer gave me an unlawful order, hey, you know, Corporal Fernandez, take your forty-five out and shoot that guy in the head. That's not a lawful order. I'm not going to follow that. But when it come, came to obedience, I obeyed orders because, again, I, you know, that was part of the military system that I was in. I think of the Roman centurion who has a servant that is sick, and he hears that Jesus is in the area, and he asks Jesus to come and heal his servant. And the thing that happens is Jesus is approaching Caesarea to do that. The, the Roman centurion basically communicates to Jesus I'm a man under authority. I'm in the Roman army. I'm in charge of a hundred guys. And I say to one man, go, and he goes. And I say to another man, come, and he comes. I mean, again, it's like I said, my military experience. They were following orders because they're in the army. But the Roman centurion is drawing a parallel because he respects the authority of Jesus. And he also knows that Jesus doesn't have to come under his roof to heal his servant, and he also recognizes his own unworthiness. I'm not worthy that you would come into my house, but just say the word, and I know my servant will be healed, and Jesus does. But the other thing he says about that man is he says, I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. He commends him for his faith. And the thing that I think that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand, and again, when you take it in the context of the chapter, but the whole of God's word, obedience and submission comes in the context of love that's already been demonstrated. In Ephesians chapter 5, when it talks about husbands and wives, and so many times those biblical roles that God has assigned us in marriage, so many times are being torn down in the society that we're living in. And in a sense, sometimes the church tries to make excuses for it or to kind of whitewash the truth of God's word. Well, submission and obedience. And, but the thing is, husbands who are the spiritual leaders of their homes are told that they're to love their wives as Christ loved the church and lay down their lives for their wives. And the thing is, when a woman has a husband that is doing that, just like the church who has the Lord who has done that, then submission and obedience comes pretty easily, right? Because that wife understands they're putting my needs first. My husband's putting my needs before his own needs. In the same way that Jesus put the needs of salvation and of uh, the payment for our sin before the needs of his, I mean, he put those first so that he could redeem his bride, the church. So all that to say back in 17 is, you know, we're to remember, we're also to obey. And he says, and he gives the reasons why, because they're watching for your souls. And they have to give an account. And that they might do it with joy and not with grief, because that's unprofitable for you. The pastor that's doing those things, and I believe your pastor does this as well, but he cares for the spiritual health of the flock that's here. He's watching for your souls, but he also understands the gravity. And that's the thing, James says this. He says, not to be many masters or teachers, because they will give the greater account. You know, so it's, it's easy to tell other people what to do. 
But when you're accountable and when you have to answer to God, you know, one of the things that I had to learn as a young pastor back 30 years ago is up until that point, I had taught Bible studies and had been invited from time to time to fill the pulpit for the, the pastor at Calvary Chapel, Santa Fe, or in Oceanside and different places. But it wasn't until I began to, to, to we, we planted the church, we began to, the church began to grow. And one of the things is I enjoyed the teaching aspect of it. But the thing I didn't like was the responsibility aspect of it. But there's a responsibility that the man of God or that the pastor has because ultimately they have to answer to God for that. See, being in the pew, we pretty much have to answer for ourselves or as a husband, I have to answer for my wife and my family. But there's a much greater spiritual responsibility that the man of God or that the pastor has. And he's watching for your souls and he has to give an account. And I think about Moses in the Old Testament. Moses is responsible of a flock of, you know, probably estimated two million people. And Moses also, in, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it describes Moses as the humblest man in all the earth, the meekest man. How do we know that? Because Moses wrote that about himself. <laughs> he wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he could write that. I mean, but here's the thing. Anytime there was a challenge to his authority as a shepherd to the flock, did you ever see Moses just, you know, lose it? Well, on one occasion he did lose it when he smote the rock a second time. You rebels, do we have to? And he, you know, kind of like the hockey players that jump over the plexiglass and go after the crowd. I mean, you know, he loses at one time. But here's the thing. Moses never, ever, whenever he was confronted as far as his authority or his leadership, he was secure in the fact that God has called me. And any time there was discipline that needed to be done among the flock, who did it? God. God is opening up the ground and swallowing up Dathan and Abiram. God is the one that's sending the fiery serpents throughout the camp. God is the one that, again, too, every single time when there's this grumbling, murmuring, complaining about this leader and we want to go back, it's just like, okay, you know, we don't want to go into the promised land. They're like giants. Okay, well, then God says you can wander in the wilderness for 40 years until you die. Your kids will go in. But here's the thing. I just bring this parallel up. Because I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us in verse 17. Is that when a pastor can, with joy, give an account for the flock that he pastors, that's good for the flock. But if he goes before the Lord and just says, Lord, I'm having such problems with the flock, and the Lord then is the one that steps in, okay, I'll start doing some discipline. And many times the pastor doesn't even have to do anything because it's God that's administering that discipline. And here's the thing. It's not profitable for the flock that is problematic. And that's what he says there at the end of verse 17. That's unprofitable for you. Not because the man has lost his temper or he's somehow going out into the crowd with a hockey stick. It's because, you know what, the Lord's the one that's fighting, you know, the battles, and the Lord's the one that's protecting those that he's called into the ministry. And that's not to say that as a pastor we're perfect. We make mistakes. I mean, we wouldn't be human if we didn't make mistakes. But the thing is, ultimately, God is the one that has given us those positions of leadership and are worthy of that obedience and of submission because of the love. Pray for us. Verse 18, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly, but I beseech you the rather do this, that you may be restored, that I may be restored to you the sooner. The writer of Hebrews is wanting to come and see them. He says, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, this is the closing benediction, the blessing, uh, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect or complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 22, and I beseech you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, brethren, 
allow the word of exhortation. So many times we don't want to be exhorted. But exhortation is an encouragement. Sometimes being exhorted is convicting. But never harden your heart to hear something that makes you feel uncomfortable. But the important thing is to consider those things. The writer of Hebrews says at the end of verse 22, for I have written a letter to you in few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty with whom if he shall come shortly, I will see you. The last thing he says about those that have the rule over you, he said, remember, he says, obey. And the last thing he says, and again, this is something woven throughout the chapter. He says, salute. Now, at some point, Rob Yardley got the idea or remembers that I was in the Marine Corps. So I think it was yesterday and the day before, and even this morning when he sees me, he throws up, one of these salutes, you know? And the thing is, I was in the Marine Corps, and my wife can tell you, sometimes I get so nitpicky sometimes about the movies that, or TV shows that have Marines in them. I think CBS came out with one this fall or recently, and I'm looking at the commercials, and I look at the commercials, not a single person there is a Marine, because they wouldn't look that way. I'm just, I can be critical. But the one thing I'm really critical about is saluting. And sometimes you see this kind of a thing or whatever, and it's like, okay, a Marine would hold his arm, and I'm chubby, and it's harder for me to do this, and, but, you know, he would hold his arm, you know, perpendicular to his body, and he would throw it out. His hand would be at a 45 angle, touching the brim of his cover. We didn't call it a hat because women wore hats and men wore covers. So he snap that salute and then it goes down straight like that and here's the thing all that to say is that's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says salute (laughs) if you look at the Greek word and I love this because this is beautiful if you think about it that word in the Greek has the idea of embracing Now, some cultures, when we started the Bible study in our house, and and a lot of times after worship, we'd encourage people, hey, take a minute, say hi to each other. And I think within the Calvary Chapel family or culture, we have no problem hugging each other. At least I don't think we do. We're comfortable with that. It is an expression of love. Sometimes you haven't seen somebody in a long time, you hug them. But here's the thing, the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, Hug those that have the rule over you. I remember when I was going to say, when we started the Bible study, we were meeting in this um, Seventh-day Adventist school that they would rent us the library to use. And, and the thing is, I'd, after worship, I'd say, take a minute to greet each other and to hug each other. And everybody stood there like this. And it was like their arms were, 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 were strapped down to their sides, you know? And it took a little loosening up. Matter of fact, I'm the type of person, being Mexican, I'm the type of person that when I sense people are a little uptight, I have this, I like to call it a spiritual gift of loosening people up. I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm Mexican and I have the gift of loosening people up. I'm Mexlax. So, but here's the thing. Because the high school my daughter went, I mean, people were very, I'd come in wearing my Hawaiian shirts that Dwight's very, although flannel is the new Hawaiian. But um, the thing that the writer of Hebrews says is to salute them, to greet them, to embrace them. And I'm going to tell you, this is what happens when you actually have that human touch with someone else, especially for me as a pastor. As a pastor, it's encouraging when someone hugs me. I sense that because you can't be, I, at least my opinion, it, you can't be mad or angry or at odds with somebody if you're going to hug them, right? That's the last thing a person wants to do is to hug you if they're mad at you. But when somebody hugs me, in a way, it's a way for me to know, hey, everything is all right in our relationship. But the other thing that I think it does is for me as a pastor, as I hug people that are a part of my flock, I think it communicates from a pastoral sense the love and the care that I have for them. So maybe sometimes I go out of my way to hug people and maybe it makes people feel a little uncomfortable or awkward, like what's that about? 
I don't know. I, I, for me, I feel like it is a way of communicating a care, a concern. And I think some of the absence of hugging within the church culture, I understand that we don't want to be too touchy-feely or things like that. But the writer of Hebrews says to do that. He says, salute them that have the rule over you and all the saints and they of Italy salute you. They're sending their hugs from Italy. Grace be with you all, amen. I wanted to close with one last thing and I know I've gone probably longer than you typically do on a Sunday morning. But there's one more thing I wanted to bring up. And again, it's just the gratefulness that I have for Calvary Chapel Appleton and for Dwight, my friend. And my wife and I moved back to Minnesota in 1988. I don't like to bring up movies in a sermon message for fear that people might think I'm endorsing the movie or anything like that, but there's a a movie that's near and dear to my heart. It's the movie Field of Dreams. And it's near and dear to my heart for a couple of reasons. And they kind of all linked together. The first reason is, is in 88 when we moved back to Minnesota, I was working, it was one of the hottest summers in, in I think 50 years. It was hot, it was humid, and the majority of my work outside the ministry was outside, and I would come home at the end of the day, and it was just horrible. And in the opening scene of the movie, The Field of Dreams, and actually the thing I'll say is, And that summer, I think it was August, the movie was coming out and there was a theater that was showing it, I think a few weeks before it actually opened. It kind of caught my attention because I love baseball. You know, in 87, the Twins won the World Series and we watched that from Albuquerque. And we came back in 88, we went to some games and there was still kind of lingering baseball, you know, fever going on in Minnesota because of the Twins. And then the movie Field of Dreams comes out and we go see it. In the opening scene, Ray is going through the cornfield and you can just hear the crickets and you can feel the heat and he's digging up the corn to see if it's healthy at its roots. And then he hears the voice. But the other reason why the field, the movie Field of Dreams is important to me is when our daughter was born. We adopted our daughter. My wife was out in California in the delivery room as Sarah was being born. And when I got the call that Robin, the birth mom, was going into the hospital, and I began to pray. But the other thing, I was by myself. My mom's house was five minutes away. And I instinctively just went to my mom's house because I didn't want to be alone during this event. I'm just going to wait until Lynn calls me. And the thing is, this was before there were cell phones. So I told her, call me at mom's house. That's where I'll be. And the movie that was on that Sunday night, April 7th, 1991, was Field of Dreams. So I'm watching that as my daughter is born. And then throughout that summer in 91, to take our mind off of the process of waiting for our, to be able to bring our daughter home because we were adopting her, we went to a lot of Minnesota Twins games. We would buy the $3 seats and sit up in the, you know, the general admission. And, and we didn't have a TV back then, so we would get caught up on what's going on on the news and sports. They'd show that on the Jumbotron. But when I worked, you know, the first year that I went to work in Minnesota, I worked for a company that put in the Jumbotron at the Metrodome that's now been torn down and replaced by U.S. Bank Stadium. But both baseball and Field of Dreams, and recently I saw it. And here's the thing. When I watch the movie Field of Dreams, it reminds me of so many things that are personal to me that the Lord has done, but specifically the call to ministry and how the Lord has fulfilled that. And as I thought about this, and I don't know if I'm assuming that everybody's seen the movie But it got me thinking, what if the movie Field of Dreams was a Christian movie? Ray would be a pastor who built a church in the middle of his cornfield. And at the beginning of the movie, Ray would hear a voice speaking to him. But instead of hearing, if you build it, he will come, Ray would hear, if you teach it, they will come. At the end of the movie, when Ray is on the verge of losing his farm and his brother-in-law is trying to forcibly buy the farm from him by foreclosing on it, 
Ray's daughter says to him, people will come. And then James Earl Jones, this morning when I woke up, when I wake up in the morning, I have James Earl Jones's voice. But by the time I get, I've got my, by the time in the middle of the days come along, I've got my same girly voice once again. It's a high voice. But James Earl Jones at the end gives this speech encouraging Ray. Like I said, this is now a Christian movie in my mind. Encouraging Ray to keep the church going by saying, people, people will come, Ray. They'll come to church for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up in your driveway not knowing for sure what, what, why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only an hour and a half service. They'll spend that time without even thinking about it for it's time that they have and peace that they lack. And they'll walk into the sanctuary and they'll sit in the pews on a perfect Sunday morning. They'll find that they have reserved seats near the front of the church where they sat when they were children and they cheered their Bible heroes. And they'll worship and they'll listen to the teaching of God's word, and it'll be as if they dip themselves in living waters. The memories will be so thick that they'll have to brush them away from their faces. People will come, Ray. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been the Bible. Christianity has been ruled by it like an army of steamrollers, History has been erased like a blackboard and rebuilt and erased again. But God's word has marked the time. This church, this sanctuary, it's part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray people will most definitely come. That's how I feel about the ministry. That's how I feel about the conferences. And that's how encouraged I feel every time at the end of the conference to go back and just continue to minister and teach because people do come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for the things that you accomplish. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the gifts and the callings that you've placed on those that you've called to tend the flock. I pray, Lord, for a blessing upon Dwight and upon Judy and upon the leadership here at Calvary Chapel Appleton and, Lord, for their faithfulness. Amen. will come. At the end of the movie, when Ray is on the verge of losing his farm and his brother-in-law is trying to forcibly buy the farm from him by foreclosing on it, Ray's daughter says to him, people will come. And then James Earl Jones, this morning when I woke up, when I wake up in the morning, I have James Earl Jones's voice. But by the time I get, I've got my, by the time in the middle of the days come along, I've got my same girly voice once again. It's a high voice. But James Earl Jones at the end gives this speech encouraging Ray, like I said, this is now a Christian movie in my mind, encouraging Ray to keep the church going by saying, people, people will come, Ray. They'll come to church for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up in your driveway not knowing for sure what, what, why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only an hour and a half service. They'll spend that time without even thinking about it, for it's time that they have and peace that they lack. And they'll walk into the sanctuary and they'll sit in the pews on a perfect Sunday morning 
they'll find that they have reserved seats near the front of the church where they sat when they were children and they cheered their Bible heroes. And they'll worship and they'll listen to the teaching of God's word and it'll be as if they dipped themselves in living waters. The memories will be so thick that they'll have to brush them away from their faces. People will come, Ray. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been the Bible. Christianity has been ruled by it like an army of steamrollers. History has been erased like a blackboard and rebuilt and erased again. But God's word has marked the time. This church, this sanctuary, it's part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. That's how I feel about the ministry. That's how I feel about the conferences. And that's how encouraged I feel every time at the end of the conference to go back and just continue to minister and teach because people do come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for the things that you accomplish. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the gifts and the callings that you've placed on those that you've called to tend the flock. I pray, Lord, for a blessing upon Dwight and upon Judy and upon the leadership here at Calvary Chapel Appleton and, Lord, for their faithfulness. Amen.